Bible or some smartphone device, you'll be looking at the, the passage with us. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 2. 2 Samuel chapter 2. Um, so, so many of you know, I'm here at Redeemer, we, we are constantly kind of working our way through a book of Scripture. And so we try to alternate as much as we can um, between Old Testament and New Testament books. Um, and, but the reason we do that, um, the reason that we just kind of look at it chapter by chapter by chapter, um, is, is one, it forces us to preach passages that we t- just typically wouldn't preach. Um, it forces us to, to wrestle with, why is this here? What are we going to do with this? Um, First and Second Samuel are historical books. They're telling both um, a, a theology of God's character and how He's working and moving in Israel, but it's also giving us facts, right? And it's showing um, some transition that is going on. Um, First and Second Samuel are, are were some three thousand years removed from this story, um, and we are watching a loose kind of confederation of the twelve tribes of Israel under the judges becoming a monarchy, right? A united nation, um, first under King Saul and now under King David. Um, and, and so we're watching that. And so some of it is it's, it's battles and it's facts and it's, it's history, but it's showing the story of God as, as how He is building a nation. Um, and so we, we look at it kind of under both of those lenses. Um, because really, if, you're, if you are reading through Second Samuel, um, there are passages that passages that you would go, man, we have to preach that. And there are some passages that you'd be like, I don't know what to do with that, right? Like, it's just, what, what do we do with it? And, and this morning's passage is probably one of those that you wouldn't just run to as this, like, benchmark passage to preach. And yet we want um, to trust and believe that all of God's Word um, is profitable and beneficial. Um, and so we want to do the work of, of, of leaning into that. So just to set the scene a little bit, um, we ended First Samuel a couple weeks ago with Saul's death. He's killed in battle with his three oldest sons. Um, David, last week in Second Samuel um, chapter one, learns of Saul's death. He now knows that that the king has died, the one who was trying to hunt him down and kill him. He doesn't respond as you would anticipate um, in rejoicing, but he actually laments over the loss of of the Lord's anointed um, and in the the way that things should have been, and yet. They weren't. Um, David doesn't have all the information, right? We, we know some truth because of the narrative that David doesn't yet know about how Saul died in battle. But the David is lamenting. And it's been, he was anointed, David has been anointed king for years. It's been a long, kind of painful road to the throne. And so we're going to pick up in chapter 2, uh, verse 1, and, and continue the story now. So after his lament in the end of chapter 1, verse, verse 1, chapter 2, after this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. And David said, to which shall I go up? And he said to him, to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinanim of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and, they, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And when they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. 
Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahan. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all of Israel. And Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was forty years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. All right, so, so we already see that there's going to be some trouble, right? Like that, that there's, going to, there's two claims here to the throne. Um, you know, you're thinking, hey, David's been anointed king. It's been this long, arduous process of surviving in the wilderness, of being hunted by, the, the act, uh, by Saul. Um, finally, now that Saul is dead, he's finally going to be able to take the throne. And yet, we see immediately, um, that's not, not, not the place. Nothing's going to be easy here. Um, and yet, in verse 1, David inquires of the Lord. Right? If we, if we think through the life of Saul, Saul was constantly having to be told, shouldn't you ask God? Like, shouldn't you go to Him? Like, shouldn't you be spiritual? And he's like, oh yeah, I should, I should do that. And yet David here, right, as, as he is leading and, and wondering what's next, he inquires of the Lord that he goes to him asking for direction and for guidance. So we're already seeing a difference in the, in the character and the makeup of the two kings here. And he moves um, from Ziklag, which has been burned. He moves up to Hebron. Hebron is maybe a city, if you if, if you spend any time in Genesis lately, that you would rec- recognize it's the area that Abraham initially kind of settled as he left Lot. And so what the narrator is doing here is he's helping us understand that the promises of God to the people of God in Genesis, right, he's connecting David to Abraham. He's, he's reminding them that they are called to be a nation, to be a blessing to the world, right, that the nations would come and worship the one true God. And so it's, it's just beginning to, to bring us in and connecting those things, tying into the promises. Um, Jabesh Gilead is not, um, these people, this city, um, right now are not under King David's reign. They would be considered an enemy of David at this point. And yet we see him being kind and gracious and merciful to them um, because of their service of Saul. Like that, that they treated the Lord's anointed, the King of Israel, with respect, um, even in death. And so he's already responding to them, saying, listen, I want to, I want to be good to you because I'm grateful for what you've done. We don't get their response yet, right? We just begin to see that, that there are two claims to the throne here. And it, and it probably feels um, familiar, right? That in any history book that you've read, pretty much in any movie right, that you've seen, transitions of power are always a little bit sticky. They're a little bit tricky, right? And this is going to feel very familiar in that regard, that nothing's going to be quick and easy. And so what we're going to see is that David, who is the Lord's anointed, who's been promised the throne, um, and his commander is going to be known as Joab. Okay? And in the second camp, we have Ishbosheth, right? Who's the fourth and, and surviving son of Saul, right? And his commander um, in general is Abner, all right? And basically, Abner is going to make Ishbosheth his puppet. Right, Abner. Um, it's it's kind of like what you would see in a lot of 
a lot of um, government takeovers even today where it's really the, the military that's in control and they, they bring up a politician and, and put him over here, but the commander, the general's in control. And so you have Saul's lineage, which the, the kingship was torn, right? The lineage was torn by God and says, like, you're not going to be the next rulers of Israel, yet power is not easily given up. And naturally, most normally, you would have seen one of Saul's sons take over the throne. And yet we know that God is going to put David on the throne. And so we have this kind of complex situation and this struggle that's going to begin to emerge. And so in verses 12 through 32, we're not going to read all of these, but in in this, we just begin to see a lot of violence taking place, right? And when you have a transition of power, often um, throughout history, there's violence and there's just um, wickedness taking place. And so pick up with me in verse 16. Um, in, in this scene, here's what's happened. Joab and his men, and, and Abner and his men, these two generals have arrived at this pool of water, right? And they're having a conversation, and they're, they're saying, hey, maybe we should just put forth some of our men, 12 on 12, um, to have a contest and, and see what happens. And yet there's conflict and there's, there's turmoil, and so you know what's going to happen. So let's, let's look in verse 16. And so each, right, one-on-one, each of the twelve grabbed the other twelve. They caught his opponent by the head, and they thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Um, and, and, and the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And so basically you have this strange scene where they, each of them send twelve out, they run out there, they both grab each other by the head, and then just kind of simultaneously everyone gets stabbed and falls over dead. Right? And so you just have 24 people just dead like that. And, and you, you just see kind of the needless violence that's taking place, I mean, this stalemate that is taking place between these two camps that are both looking to take the throne. Um, so then pick up in, in verse 18. So Abner, who is... Um, the king, or sorry, is the commander of Ishbosheth's army. So this is Saul's lineage here, right? He begins. He's running. He's leading his men, and he begins to be chased by one of Joab, who's the general of David's armies, one of his younger brothers. So look up in uh, verse eighteen. And the three sons of Zeruiah, who is David's sister, were there. Joab, um, Abishai. And Ashel. Now Ashel was as swift a foot as a wild gazelle. And Ashel pursued Abner. So you have this younger brother of the general pursuing the opposite general. And as he went out, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. And then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Ashel? And he answered, It is I. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left. Seize one of the young men and take his spoil. So basically, he's being chased by this young man. And he's like, hey, go, go fight somebody else. Right? Quit chasing me. And Abner said to him, um, right, seize one of the young men, take his spoil. But Eshel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Eshel, turn aside from following, following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then can I lift up my face to your brother Joab? And so we see that he's offering some respect to his, his counterpart. Right? He's like, listen, I don't want to kill you because I respect your brother. And if I respect your brother and I kill you, it's going to make this difficult and we're already at war. And so, but he refused to turn aside, verse 23. 
Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where a shell had fallen and died stood still. And so basically Abner's running. This young man is about to catch him. He's fast. And he just kind of stops with his spear. And in the collision, he kills Joab's younger brother. Right? Which we know in a, in a wartime situation, right? this is only going to escalate things. This death. So we'll pick up in verse 24. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. So now the one brother who's died, his two older brothers, they begin to pursue the opposite general. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Amah, which lies before Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gabon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on top of a hill. And so these two men, one the general and his brother, are chasing the opposite general Right, wanting to avenge their brother, but eventually Abner is able to get to some allies, and a group of men stand there and kind of form like, hey, like if you're going to come, you're going to die. Right? We have this standoff taking place. And Abner, one general calls to Joab, the other general, shall the sword devour forever? Do you know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? Right, Because these are people of the same nation. And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet. All the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. All right? And so basically, Abner speaks with, with some wise words. Right? And, and the standoff and says, Listen, there's no benefit in us fighting anymore tonight. Like, let's, let's go our separate ways. And the opposite general, Joab, is like, I think you're right. And they call off the dogs, right? And they both go their opposite ways. So you just see this just violence dripping in chapter 2. We end chapter 2, if we go to verse 30. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner. And when he gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men, Besides the shell. So, right, they've lost 20 men over this day. Um, and we know of 13 of them, right? The initial 12 and then a shell. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up a shell and they buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them in Hebron. And so, really, the narrator is just is, is setting the scene for us, is helping us to see listen, this is. Not a peaceful transition of power. It is violent. It is ugly. It's complicated. And there are crises at hand, um, mostly because of Saul's bad leadership. And now th- this is what David is going to inherit as king. And that nothing is going to be easy. Um, and so we have the two claims to the throne. We see the struggle. And, and let's look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Just this summation. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And then the next several verses are just a list of all the sons that David begins to have born to him. Right, This idea that David and his clan and his house are flourishing, and that Saul's house is waning. Right, That we see the inevitable end to this, and yet there is so much grief and violence and power taking place. So we're going to skip down to verse 6. 
While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul, right? So the general is kind of rising up, right? And, and he is the one who is strong and powerful. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? And Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers, to his friends, and I have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. And so basically we have this scene where the king, right, he's beginning to realize, yes, I'm king, but this is the guy that's in charge. This is the guy that's powerful. And so to take um, a, a former king's wife or concubine as your own was to make a claim on the throne, right? This would be um, if you're not the king, this is an act of treason, that you're saying, I'm, I'm opposing the king. And so there's no um, validity, most likely, to the fact that Abner's done this. Ishbosheth just accuses him of it. He says, look at, look at what you've done. And we see Abner's response, that he blows up and he's angry. He's like, listen, I've done all of this for you. I've been loyal to you. And what's interesting is that he's aware that David has been anointed, that he's supposed to be the next king. He's been fighting against what the Lord has said. It was a private anointing earlier in 1 Samuel, and yet Abner is now aware of it. It seems to be common knowledge. And so he says, listen, this is it. I'm done with the house of Saul. Right? You can imagine after having watched Saul's crazy behavior, accusations, cutting off his own family, attempting to kill David, now he's sitting here listening to a son of, of Saul make insane accusations, and he's like, here we go again. It's another Saul. Okay, I'm out. I'm done. I'm going to do what... I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that David becomes king. And the king, who could have him killed in this moment, right? we see him for what he is, that he was simply a puppet in verse 11. He could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. And so basically you have Abner blow up at him. The king sits there in fear, and Abner leaves to go and set up David to try to bring about a deal. Uh, so pick up in verse 12. So Abner sent messengers um, to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all of Israel to you. And he said, Good, I'll make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, is that you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Now, if you remember, Michael was David's wife. And in the midst of Saul attempting to, to cut David out, attempting to kill him, he takes his daughter back and gives her to another man and basically steals David's wife. And so we see David saying, listen, I'll, I'm willing to make a treaty, but you've got to bring Michael. And it's probably twofold, right? He, he, he cared about her. He, he wanted her, but it was also a political move, right? That it, it ties him back into Saul's lineage. And so now if there's anyone who's going, hey, Saul's household should have kept the kingship, then David could say, well, I was his son-in-law, right? Like it, it's kind of a, it's a political 
move as well. That we see that David is constantly um, thinking in this regard. And, and so Ishbosheth, they all agree. They send Michael back. And there's, there's a, a scene here where the husband of her goes weeping after her um, until the, the general finally says, you've got to go home. Like, this is bigger than you. Um, that we just see that, that people are caught up in this. And there's real human emotion, and there's real struggle, and there's real difficulty, and there's real brokenness in the midst of the, these kings deciding who's going to be the king. Um, I think it's easy sometimes to look at situations like this and see it only from like the big picture and yet there are individuals who are affected in this. So let's pick up now in verse 17. We're going to see Abner go to work on behalf of David. Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you've been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David... I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. And when Abner came with twenty men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all of Israel to the Lord my king. They will make a covenant with you that you may reign over all that your hearts desire. And so David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. And so it's like all of a sudden we have this huge turn, right, that, that Abner has, has, has really turned against Saul's household, and he is the one who is facilitating David becoming king over all of Israel. Right? He's, he's going and talking on his behalf. He's going to the elders. He has their respect. And it's like finally the transition is going to take place. Finally we're going to see David on the throne. Finally, some success and some good news. But you know that's not where it's going, right? Because Joab, David's general, returns. He's not a part of this meeting. And he hears that Abner, who killed his younger brother, has just left David. And Abner loses his mind. He's like, what are you doing? You let him leave? Like, he killed my brother. We can't trust him. Right? It's the same, like, what you would anticipate in a situation like this, right? That it's it's eye for an eye. Everyone's angry. It's a power play. So let's pick up in verse 26. When Joab came out from David's presence, so he's, he's, he's argued with David, now he's left. He sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sarah. But David did not know about it. And so basically Joab sends some men after him, says, hey, wait, David's got more to say to you, and brings Abner back. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of a shell, his brother. Afterwards, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house, and may the house of Joab never be be without one who has a discharge or who has a leprosy, one who holds a spindle, which is a crutch, or falls by the sword or who lacks bread. And so Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother, a shell, to death in the battle of Gabon. Right? And we just see like, man, we cannot win here. 
right? Like finally something good's happening that looks like they're going to come together, and Joab takes things into his hand and kills the one who's looking to bring about a united kingdom and peace. And then David immediately just washes his... I mean, this is his general, and he's like, listen, I had nothing to do with this. I did not send him to do this. I did not advise him. And he basically curses Joab's family of like, you're always going to have struggle and difficulty. Like, the guilt is upon you. And so the end of chapter 3 is much like the end of chapter 1, where David begins, we see the poet's side, he mourns, he laments. They have this massive funeral um, for Abner. He makes Joab participate in it, as awkward as that is, right? Showing like, I, this is not what I wanted. And let's pick up in verse 36. All the people took notice of it, right? They're taking notice of the funeral, of the whole scene and the situation, and it pleased them as everything the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all of Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. Like He's like, that's not what I had to do, but this is how I handled it. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. The Lord will repay the evildoers according to the wickedness. So listen, if you, if you go home today and just read through chapters 2 and 3, there's just kind of this moment of like, good grief. Like, seriously? Violence upon violence, backstabbing, treachery, um, struggle. Honestly, if we're, if we're being honest, like we know da- who David becomes, but there's the question here of who's the, who are the good guys? Right, like who, who are we supposed to be rooting for here? But church, it would be easier if the, if the author of First and Second Samuel had just said, Saul died, and then David became king. Right, like, that if we were, we were going to kind of rewrite history, whitewash history a little bit, it would have just been easier to say, listen, some things happened and David became king. And yet it leaves the honesty, the details, um, it shows the difficulty and the complexion that it is fractured and it's messy and it's complicated. Unfortunately, it feels pretty normal, right? If we're familiar with history, if you have an interest in politics at all, right? Right? It just feels pretty normal for transitions of power. Unfortunately, see, in this we see the realities that we live in a fractured world that nothing happens as seamlessly and quick as we want. Right? Like nothing happens quite as easily as we want. And honestly for us, um, it's even in our own, sal- our own salvation and sanctification. It's not as quick and seamless and easy as we want. Right? Now listen, our salvation is, is immediate and it's secure, but our growth, our sanctification, our leaving behind of, of our own struggles, of our own sin, of our own issue, is a process. First um, uh, Corinthians three eighteen says right that it, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And so in this, we, are, we have seen David showing um, grace and, and sparing Saul. Right, we've seen um, him give grace to his enemies, Jeb, uh, Jebish Gilead. Right? We've seen him pursue the Lord. We've seen his beautiful poetry. We've seen him honor those who have died. But we also have seen violence and deceit and raids 
and difficulty in David's life too. And so it, it looks like our life, right? Like even if ours hasn't been as violent, right, as, as, noticeable, as notable as this, we are not changed as seamlessly as we wish we were. Right? There is a struggle and a fight to leave the things that once enslaved us behind, even though the power of sin has been broken. That God does not just flip a switch and transform us immediately, that we are transformed bit by bit by bit. And so we just begin to see the realities and the norms of life in a passage like this that feels so maybe removed from us, we begin to go, okay, this, this actually could look like my life a little bit. The sin and the situations and the people are different, and yet I want things to happen quick and easy and seamless, and they just don't. We see the positives and the negatives of David. And what it should do, right, is it's beginning to paint a picture, it's beginning to point us to as, as good of a king as David is actually going to be, he's not the king. That we need a better king. We need a hero that's not so messy. We need a hero that's not so laden with sin. We need one who's not flawed. And so David is pointing to us. He's, he's already beginning to make us cry out for, God, something better. Something more. Right? That we have Jesus who is the better David. And if you think about the life of Jesus, right, that He ministers and lives for some 30 years, right, before He even comes on the public scene, that it is not quick, right, it's not easy, that He's born, right, into a manger, that He lives in, uh, not in a palace, He's not living with power and prestige, that He's living a life of a carpenter, right, in, in, a, in a standard normal family, in anonymity for 30 plus years, before He steps on to the scene. And then things don't get easier, right, they get complicated, Listen, the throne had been promised to David. It was his throne, and God was going to see it through. And yet the process has been messy and complicated. The throne has always been Jesus's. But he did not step out of heaven, right, and onto a worldly throne immediately. He walked through a slow process, a complicated, convoluted process, revealing himself to us, right, as being from God, as being God of having the power of life over death, the power over creation, right? the, the ability to, to bring healing when sickness existed. The, the fact is, is even today there would be those who would oppose Jesus and say He doesn't belong on the throne. The throne isn't His. And yet it is. right? The truth is, is it is His throne. And He sits at the right hand of the Father today. Just because David hasn't been anointed, hasn't, he's been anointed king, just because David hasn't been named king over all of Israel does not make it any less true that that's what God's going to do. And just because Jesus hasn't split the sky yet and revealed to every name and every face and every nation who He is that we would see clearly makes it no less true that that is who He is and that is what He's going to do. Right? It's been slower maybe than we want. It hasn't been as seamless as we want, but it is true. The second is this, is that we see um, a lack of perfection in David. We see him sometimes just, not always just. And so it reminds us of this, a verse that we often save for Christmas. Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, 
And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Right, that we're reminded that the one who is coming after David is a king who is bringing an eternal kingdom, one of justice and one of peace, and that he is not just promising something that he cannot deliver. He is going to bring it to complete fruition. That he is just. Listen, this is Psalm 89, verses 13 and 14. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. That we're just constantly reminded in Scripture, right, that the house of David is sending forth a king, Jesus, who will do everything that our hearts long for and desire, and that they will be just and perfect and righteous and without sin and without end. That it will not be this messy thing that David is bringing. We're told in 1 John 3, 5, right, that Jesus had no sin. Right? He was without sin. In 1 Peter 2, 22, that He had no deceit in His mouth. We've seen deceit in David. There was no deceit in the mouth of Jesus. That He is a better version. He is a better David. Because He is perfect. And He is holy. And He's going to shepherd perfectly. And He's going to handle the crises perfectly. The third thing that that David begins to just give us eyes to see Jesus is this. As we've seen David attempt to not take the the throne by by guilt, right? By blood. So he has not killed Saul when given opportunity. He didn't kill Nabal when he was offended, right? He doesn't want Abner killed. And he's he's making sure people know his hands are not involved in this. And yet we know that we're guilty, David was guilty. We have sin on our hands. We have blood on our hands because we've rebelled against the Holy God. And when John the Baptist sees Jesus in John 1, he says, Behold, behold the Lamb of God who's come to take the sins of the earth. Right? Like that's he saw him and he recognized him. He's like, He's here to do that. And so through Jesus' perfect life, right, on our behalf, through his obedient death. He then takes on the guilt and, and absorbs the wrath of God on our behalf. Right? So that we don't have it on us any longer. He doesn't have to confess. There's no guilt. He is innocent. And He takes the guilt so that we are innocent. He takes it and exchanges it so that we will be right with God the Father. And then He reveals that He is who He says He was because He comes back from the grave. The last thing is this, as we are just thinking about the, the, the future king that David has pointed us to. Right? He's going to come and vanquish our enemies. Right? We have enemies. And God is sending a king who is able to deal with it. He's dealing with our sin issue and our need. He's dealing with Satan. He's dealing with death. That's why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, Right, The death of Jesus is the death of death that we don't fear death any longer for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Romans 12 will tell us that vengeance is the Lord's, right? That He is coming as a king who is going to vanquish our enemies and whose vengeance is His, that we don't have to take it upon our own hands, that He is setting things right. He's making things restored and nude for the better day that's coming. And church, the glorious thing is, is that He's taking His enemies of whom we all once were or currently are and is bringing them into the family of sons and daughters. Right, That His entire family, the entire kingdom of God is made up of those who once opposed God, who once warred and rebelled against Him. And yet He has taken the guilt of us. He has demonstrated His love for us at the cross when we were far from Him, not when we were close to Him. When we hated Him or warred against Him or trusted ourselves and not Him, He brings us into the family and He vanquishes our enemy. And so as we read through passages like this in, in 2 Samuel, that you're like, man, it just feels dirty. Would it give us eyes to see, right? And so there's a couple of responses. We're going to look at these super quick. One, we can lament, as we talked about last week. We can cry out to God and say, this isn't what you would have for us. And we don't yet have what we're, the, what we're longing for, what we know is coming for us. And so God, we, we, we miss it and we mourn it. When we see failed examples in the government, or in nations, or in leaders, or in pastors, those who are not reflecting the character of God, we lament and we mourn that God has a better day coming for us, and yet right now we're tasting and seeing the effect and the consequence of sin. We long for it to be done and over with. But the second thing is, is we don't just lament, we rejoice. Right? We have these two things that seem so opposite, and yet as the people of God, we get to do them both. We lament that it's not yet there, and we rejoice that He has come for us, that we have the cross to look back on, and that He is coming back. Right? And so we live in a unique time in history where we get to look back, and we get to look forward. And we know that a better day is coming, and they're going to last forever, that He has won, and the enemies have been defeated, and that He's with us now. Right? He's given us His Spirit now. And He has been generous and has made us co-heirs. Right? That we're going to inherit everything alongside Jesus. That our King hasn't just come right, to make us subservient to Him. He has come to bring us into the kingdom to feast with us, to enjoy Him, to know Him, to love Him, to worship Him for all time. Like That's what we have been called to. And so we lament that we don't yet have that. And we rejoice in the fact that it's coming and it already belongs to us for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so whether we're looking through 2 Samuel or we're dealing with the realities of the world, we lament and we rejoice in the fact that we have a better King. And so when we see, church, when we see um, God's character reflected in the government or in politicians or in leaders, we celebrate it because we're like, yeah, yeah, that's it. That's a glimpse of it right there. Yes, more of that. But our hope isn't in the military or in a nation or in a government or any political ideology or any pastor or any politician or any policy. It's in Jesus who has done the work and is coming for us. And it will last for all time. So church, don't lose hope but rejoice in the fact that Jesus is sufficient. And when we see the brokenness of 
2 Samuel, when you see the brokenness of the transition of power, that we can cling to the hope we have in Jesus, even when we need to lament. Let's pray. Father, um, Lord, we, we struggle um, and wrestle with passages like this that are full of places and names that are hard to pronounce, feel far removed, and we wonder what impact it has for us. But God, would, we, would you give us the, the strength and, and the courage and the willingness to wrestle with it, and in the midst of that to begin to see um, a, a story that is pointing to you, that is pointing to forever, that is pointing to better. So Father, this morning, would we confess um, Lord, a dependence on ourselves, a dependence on the things of this world to give us security and stability and hope. And instead, Lord, would we lament the brokenness of the world while rejoicing in the fact that we know the Prince of Peace, that we know the victorious, the victorious one, we know the one who's going to split the sky. We know the one who's coming for us. We know his name. And God, that we're going to get to spend eternity with you. God, that you've done it for our good and for your glory. So Father, for those this morning who don't know you, who would still be an enemy of you, even if they wouldn't think of themselves that way, God, would you speak? Would you call them to salvation? Would you call them to trust and to know you? you are glorious and you are good and you are faithful. God, give us eyes to see you, a heart to understand, a mind to comprehend the bigness and beauty and glory of you and what our affection for you um, grow and be stirred because you are worthy of all worship. In Jesus' name, amen.